thank you, thank you, Lord. Thank you, we can take this time together tonight and open your word and open our hearts and just consider your work in this earth during the church age. And we see the inception of it here in the book of Acts. And we pray that by your spirit, you would quicken our hearts, you would quicken us, teach us, and lead us through these these amazing verses, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're studying the book of Acts, and we are particularly focused in on Paul's missionary journeys, starting tonight. We've introduced it last week. Set the stage, poised on the threshold of missions for Paul and Barnabas, or Saul and Barnabas, are the first missionaries of the early church. And, uh, of course, the key verse for the book of Acts, we could say, is Acts 1.8, which is on the next slide at the bottom there. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And this diagram just shows you um, the, the gospel echoing out from Jerusalem, and that was to the Jews in Acts 2. It goes out to Judea and Samaria, reaches the Samaritans, that's in Acts 8. And then eventually we see the mission, missionary journeys uh, beginning, and that's from Acts 13 to 28. So if we break the book of Acts down into three sections, we see the first seven chapters, the church is born in Acts 2, and we see the church growing rapidly. We see the organization, some opposition, um, the inner church discipline, the, the, the appointment of deacons, the church is growing. And then we have the transitional part here, where the church is, through persecution, being enlarged even further. The disciples are now being spread out to further areas, um, Philip going to the Samaritans, etc. And we can see in this period, there's a transition that's taking place. And it's from Peter to Paul. It's from Jerusalem to Antioch, and it's from the Jews only to the Jews and the Gentiles together. So by, we, by the time we get to 13, we can see that transition is, is pretty much complete. So about 16 years have, has taken place since Pentecost. Since Acts 2, 16 years has passed, and we covered those 16 years as we went through the chapters uh, last week, and if you, you weren't here, you can listen to that online. So as we jump in, we don't have the verses on the slide, so if you have a Bible, you can just have it open to Acts 13. And we can see in the first verse there, it says, uh, In the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tecriot, and then Saul. Notice that Barnabas is mentioned first, and Saul who will become the Apostle Paul, is mentioned last. Um, uh, Undoubtedly, we can see in the hearts of these men who were the leaders at the church of Antioch, the Holy Spirit is beginning to move and impress on their hearts the timing and the need for the gospel to go forward. So in verse 2, they ministered to the Lord and they fasted and the Holy Spirit spoke to them. Notice, as they ministered, as they prayed, as they fasted. And when you avail yourself to God in that way, wait on him, pray, listening, quiet sometimes, God will undoubtedly impress things on your heart. What did he say? He said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, Notice he says again, separate to me Barnabas and Saul. Also, the the order is still Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas is by the Holy Spirit in the text and also by the local church. It seems that Barnabas is recognized as the leader. The order isn't an accident here. And um, verse 3, Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away, or better, sent them out, would be a better translation, Um, even though God had spoken, they still prayed further, have it covered in prayer, laid hands on them. And of course, when this happened, this was 
um, a wonderful expression of two things. Number one, the ones who are laying on the hands are, are recognizing that um, they are sending, they are going to support them in prayer, encouragement, perhaps financially. They are going to be a covering for them in terms of spiritual authority. And then those who have their hands laid on them are recognizing that they are submitted, that they are being sent by a local church. There's a very healthy relationship in that symbolism. Romans 10.15 says, how, how shall they preach unless they are sent? And often the sending is twofold. It's by a local church, but of course, most importantly, it's by the Holy Spirit. And we see that in verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit. So clearly it says by the Spirit of God. And a wonderful, beautiful uh, combination of the Spirit and, and his people, the local church. And they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And if you just look at this map, uh, just for a moment, we'll familiarize ourselves with it. Of course, this is where Jerusalem is. This is Israel today, and you go up the coast, you go through um, uh, Lebanon, this is Syria, this is Turkey today, and this is where our first missionary journey activity takes place. This is the Antioch. Remember Barnabas was sent from Jerusalem in chapter 11. He comes to Antioch. He sees the work of God there. He decides to go to Tarsus, get Saul, bring him back to Antioch, and they have Bible school there for a year, teaching the disciples. And then chapter 12 is the persecution, and here we are in chapter 13. So a year or two have gone by, and, um, and now they go from Antioch to Seleucia. This is just on the coast, and this is just so that they can sail to Cyprus. It's where they're going to end up, uh, where they're going to start their uh, missionary journey. They sail to Cyprus. Maybe there's a satellite image of the same thing on the coast. There's Antioch down to Seleucia, and then they go they come, they hit this part of, of Cyprus, they sail along the coast here, and they come to Salamis. Now, Seleucia is about 15 miles or so from Antioch, not St. Lucia. <laughs> hey, someone's got to go there as a missionary, St. Lucia. But... Anyway, to Seleucia, and then they, they, it says that they, verse 5, and when they arrived in uh, Salamis... So they get in the boat, they go across to Cyprus. When they arrive in Salamis, they preach the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had also John as their assistant. Now this John is John Mark. He's someone that we become familiar with in the scriptures. It's the same Mark who writes the last gospel, the fourth gospel. He's the cousin, or perhaps more likely the nephew of Barnabas. We read that at the end of Colossians 4. And, um, and here we see him joining the team. It's interesting to note that the Holy Spirit didn't say, separate unto me Saul and Barnabas and John Mark. Nevertheless, we find him on the first team. It's interesting. You can read different uh, commentaries on that, whether maybe that wasn't God's perfect plan. Um, we'll see that John Mark doesn't survive the missionary journey. He goes home early. Perhaps he wasn't ready for the missionary journey. Um, we know later in life, when Paul is on, at the end of his life, he writes in 2 Timothy and he says, send John Mark to me because he is profitable both for me and the ministry. So later in Paul's life, Paul recognizes the value of this young John Mark, but perhaps um, this wasn't the right time for him. But nevertheless, we see him there mentioned. They also had John, uh, this is John Mark as their assistant. So they arrive in Salamis. This is a main city on the island. Many idols and uh, shrines that they would find there, temples to, to Greek gods, and they preach the gospel in the synagogue. And verse 6 says, When they had gone through the island, so here they sail, this is on, on the water, and when they'd gone through the island by foot, they come to Paphos, which is on the right at the far end. This was the capital city of Cyprus, which then was a Roman province. And it says they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. Um, there's Paphos. Paphos was a, 
a beautiful city, again, the main capital city, made of a lot of white marble, like if you go to Croatia and some of these places, you'll see that beautiful city. Um, and you can see incredible ruins there today. And they find Bar Jesus, a sorcerer. This is going to be their first encounter with spiritual warfare, someone really representing the other kingdom who wants to oppose the work of God. Remember, Jesus himself said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell will come against it, but will not prevail. 1 Corinthians 16, 9, Paul says, I have an open door, but many adversaries, many enemies. So for sure, there is opposition in the work of God. In verse 7, it tells us about this sorcerer, Bar-Jesus. It tells us in verse 7, who was with the, uh, with the governor, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. And this man called for Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. So here's the Roman governor of this Roman province, this island of Cyprus in the capital city. He hears somehow about these men who are on the island and they're preaching and he sends for them. He wants to hear their teaching. He wants to hear the gospel. And... Uh, Verse 8, but Elymas the sorcerer, uh, so is his name translated. This is by Jesus. It's just a translation of the same name. Withstood them, seeking to turn the governor away from the faith. Now, the word here, withstood them, it means he got right in their face, face-to-face confrontation to, to uh, prevent them from bringing the gospel to primarily the Roman governor, but anyone else who would hear. And then verse 9 says, And then Saul, and notice this, who also is called Paul. And this is the time in the book of Acts we see the name change. From here on in, he's called Paul, as we commonly know him, Paul the Apostle, through the epistles. There's a name change here. And the name changes for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, Paul was his um, his Gentile name, if you like, his Roman name. Saul was his Hebrew name. So there's a distinction there because he's to become the apostle to the Gentiles. It's going to be an emphasis of his ministry. Peter really was the, you could say, the apostle to the Jews primarily. Um, but it's Paul that would go further and take it on to the Gentiles. So there's a, there's a, um, a significance in that he goes from his Jewish name to his Gentile name. Um, but also... In the text, we can see a distinction between Saul of Tarsus and the Apostle Paul. Incredibly different men. When we talk about Saul of Tarsus, there's a certain imagery we have with that, and the Apostle Paul is completely different. So anyway, and perhaps we could say the third distinction is, is him becoming a primary, primary character now. And it's because it's Saul, it says, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, and said, oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And notice, it's not Barnabas who gets up and confronts him. It's Paul, the apostle. Now prepared, equipped, he's had an abundance of revelations, he's filled with the Spirit of God. He's, God has prepared him for this, this crucial moment in church history. And he steps up, and confronts, first of all, discerns, and then confronts the spiritual warfare. Um, he completely exposes the, the work and, and of the other kingdom. And he says, verse 11, And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you. You will be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Does that remind you of anything? Paul himself, it happened to him, didn't it? When he came along the Damascus Road, he was made blind, and also it was, he, he was seeking someone to help him, and it was Ananias, the disciple, etc. We know the story. So interesting parallel there. Verse 12, And then the proconsul believed. Wow, amazing. When he saw, notice, when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now notice, it's not just that he saw that confrontation and Elymas, his counselor, all of a sudden becoming blind at the hand of Paul. Not only that, but it says, astonished at the teaching. 
This is what really grabbed the, the, the heart, not just the outward signs, but the, the content of the gospel was what really gripped him. Um, astonished, blown away by what he heard. And this is God blessing the journey. We see converting this Roman leader of Cyprus. And notice verse 13. Um, oh, by the way, this is, if you go to the ruins of Paphos, they, they discovered um, an inscription of this particular Roman governor uh, giving archaeological evidence uh, for, for this historical record. Sergius Paulus, uh, this Roman convert on this first missionary journey. And verse 13 tells us, and notice again the change in text. Now when Paul and his company, or Paul and his party, set sail from Paphos. See, so notice it's changed. It's not Barnabas and Saul anymore, but now Paul and his, and his group, which we know was Barnabas and also John Mark. Set sail from Paphos. So let's retrace it. From Antioch to Seleucia, jump on a boat to Salamis, on foot to Paphos. And now they're going to get on a boat again, go up to the mainland on what is today Turkey, and they come into this harbor here. And this is verse um, uh, 13. They came to Perga in Pamphylia. And if you look on the map here, this region is called Pamphylia. This coastal city here is Perga. This is where they landed in. And then we read this. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Now, we don't have much else on that. We can speculate, why did he leave? We'll, we'll see together later at the end of Acts 15, when they, do their, when they go, decide for a second missionary journey, Uncle Barnabas says, oh, we're going to go again, Paul? Okay, I'll just get John Mark. And Paul says, hold on a minute. He's not coming with us this time. Remember, he departed and did not continue in the work of the Lord. That's what Paul says. And because of that, there's actually a split. Barnabas goes with John Mark, and Paul, Paul goes with Silas. So there's a, there's a bit of a split there, but we'll read that later. But for now, we, we, we could speculate, why did John Mark leave? And you can read different ideas. The, the, this is a, um, a notorious region for bandits and being robbed and quite a difficult journey. Perhaps that could have been the reason. But I personally think perhaps more so John Mark didn't like the change of leadership and it wasn't gracious, encouraging Uncle Barnabas that was leading anymore. It was the Apostle Paul, who perhaps was quite a hard leader. And that might have been the reason John Mark wasn't ready for, for that. So he said, I'm hightailing it back to Jerusalem. And off he went. Uh, by the way, a side study is, is uh, it's Peter, the Apostle, who gets a hold of John Mark when he comes back to Jerusalem and really invests in him. And, um, and, and, of course, John Mark is greatly used, bringing us the, the fourth gospel. So, um, so, verse 14. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. Now, you notice on the map here, there's two Antiochs. There's this Antioch, where they started, and this Antioch is called Antioch of Pisidia, which is what this says. So Antioch is connected to this region, Antioch of Pisidia. It's a different Antioch in the mainland. And this is where they came to. And what did they do? They went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And you'll notice that through Paul's missionary journeys, this is a common pattern. Um, they would often, on the Sabbath day, they would go straight down to the synagogue and they would sit down and, and hope and wait and pray that God would give them an opportunity. There's a few reasons for uh, Paul choosing that pattern when they were going to a synagogue. Um, one was they knew that they would find an audience there. They also knew that that audience predominantly would be Jewish and know the Old Testament so that they could just show the prophecies and, and lead the audience to accepting Jesus as the Messiah. And they were receptive to the Old Testament. They had a great respect to the Scriptures. Also, we know that Paul had a love for his fellow Jews and also knowing that when you would go into a synagogue as a visitor, particularly if you were recognized as a rabbi or a teacher, you may be invited to speak. And of course, this is what happens on this, this day. It tells us in verse 15, And after the reading of the law and the prophets, 
the rulers of the synagogue sent to them saying, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Now notice it says, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the typical order of a Jewish service would be, first they would read what's called the Shema, which is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, 5, 6, I think it is. Those verses would be something they would begin with. After that, they would pray. Then they would have a scripture reading, and typically it was a portion from the law, a portion from the prophets, and they would work it out so that every seven years they would read all the way through the law, all the way through the prophets. They would read a portion every Sabbath. And it's after that reading... After that scripture reading, before the teaching, they say to Paul and Barnabas, oh, we've got some visitors here. If if you have anything to say to encourage us, please say something. And again, it's not Barnabas who gets up. It's Paul who gets up, and boy, does he have something to say. This is the first recorded sermon of Paul in the New Testament, and it's, needless to say, it's, it's incredible. If we wanted to give a quick outline for his sermon, the first part is Jesus is the culmination of all history. But what he does is he goes through the Old Testament history and he brings them to David and the son of David and brings them to the Messiah. That Jesus is the fulfillment of all prophecy. Again, he shows them how Jesus, particularly through his death and burial and resurrection, fulfilled the prophets. And then lastly, and this is the punch of the gospel, he shows that Jesus is the justifier of sinners. So, in verse 16, if you, if you follow along, then Paul stood up, motioning with his hands, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God. And by the way, in these Greek cities, in these Gentile cities, the Jews were often a minority. There had to be enough of them to start a synagogue, But often a lot of Greeks or Gentiles would come to the synagogue as visitors, and these were called God-fearers. This is why Paul said, you Jews and you who fear God. These were Gentiles who were looking to the the God of Israel and listening as visitors. So he recognizes them. And he says, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And notice he says God. He starts with God. And all through this history, now often when you consider Jewish history, you can follow it by the names of key leaders that God chose. You could follow it through, through you know, Adam and you know, all the way through Enoch and Abraham. and Mo- You could follow it that way, Isaac and Jacob and Moses, etc. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't follow it by the patriarchs or the fathers. He just shows the work of God. That's his focus. So, um, the God of Israel chose our fathers. Which book of the Bible did he do that? Genesis, right? In the book of Genesis, in chapter 12, through Abraham, he chose our fathers. And exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of Egypt. Which book of the Bible is that? Exodus, right? So you see, he's going Genesis... And then Exodus, and of course Leviticus defines the priesthood, so he doesn't highlight that. But verse 18, now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And that's the book of Numbers. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. And that's Deuteronomy and particularly the book of Joshua, when Joshua led them into the land. And after that, he gave them judges for 450 years. And of course, that's the book of Judges. Until Samuel, the prophet. And afterwards, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And that's First Samuel. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king. And this is Second Samuel. So you can see he's just led them through their own history, highlighting what God had done. And he says this, to whom, David, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who would do my will. 
from this man's seed, according to the promise God raised up for Israel a savior. Now we remember back in Second Samuel 7, God had promised to David that through his seed, there will be an eternal kingdom uh, uh, of the Messiah, the one who would come. And this is what he's referring to here. God promised to David that through his seed, the Messiah would come, a savior of Israel, and here he names him. He leads through their history. He leads them to David and he says, you know who the seed of David is? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He makes this grand claim that, the, that Jesus is the culmination of history. All from the, right from the fall in the beginning of Genesis and the promise through Abraham. This is where God was leading to. The coming of the Messiah. And guess what? His name is Jesus. So he goes on now, leading them into the prophecies, verse 24. And after John had first preached, this is John the Baptist, before his coming, verse 25, as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whom I'm not worthy to to loose. Every Jew knew that before the Messiah, the forerunner would prepare the way. Um, verse 26, notice he uses this phrase again, men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, that's the Jews, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. Now, this we could read over this and maybe it doesn't impact us, but this is an incredibly radical statement in the time. It took a while for Peter and the church in Jerusalem to realize God had to give Peter the vision of the sheet coming down from heaven, remember, in Acts 10, before he would go to the house of Cornelius. To to say to him, you realize, Peter, the gospel is going to the Gentiles. It's not only for the Jews. It's to the Jews, but it's through the Jews, and it's to all men. So So Paul says here in this first sermon, men, sons of the family in Abraham, and all you who fear God, to you this word of salvation has been sent. Paul makes it crystal clear. To you Jews, and also all of you Gentiles gathered here in this synagogue today, this word of salvation is for you. It's quite something. Um, Later in Jerusalem, when we study Paul's later when he's in Jerusalem, he makes this same statement and it causes a riot. Almost costs him his life in that moment. But, but here they, they're, they're listening. It's maybe a small, small synagogue. We don't know. And then he says, verse 27, for those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. What an incredible verse. Incredible verse. Those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, imagine they go to the synagogue every, every Sabbath. They hear the words of the law and the prophets read every Sabbath. And they have actually fulfilled the words of prophecy by condemning him and sending him to the cross. Quite something. And though they found no cause of death in him, they asked Pilate that he would be put to death. Remember, Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. Fulfilling the, the, um, the principle of the Passover lamb being without fault or without blemish. And when they had fulfilled, there it is the word again, fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And this is the glorious central theme. This, Paul could say, I said all of that to say this. <laughs> he died on the cross. He rose again that we might have life. He, this is the, the glorious center of the gospel. And in fact, all through Peter's sermon in Acts 2 and Acts 3, we see, and Stephen's sermon in Acts 7, this is the central theme. It's the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. The gospel, effectively, as Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians 15. So, Verse 31, he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. Now notice this, this goes back to 1.8. 
Acts 1.8, when Jesus said, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you will be my witnesses. And this is what Paul says here. We are witnesses. Not only did he die and raise, was raised from the grave, but we are witnesses of this. And we declare to you glad tidings, verse 32, that promise which was made to the fathers. In other words, this is why we're here. This is our message. The promise that was made to our forefathers through Abraham and David, the coming of the Messiah, it was Jesus. He died on the cross, he resurrected, and this is, this is what we are declaring to you. Oh, he's getting to, the, to the, he's getting to the heart of the issue now. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm. And he, he, he makes reference to some psalms here that were foreshadowing um, the, the coming of Jesus and, and also the resurrection of Jesus here in Psalm 16, verse 35 here. says, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. And that means that the resurrection would happen before three days would pass, when decay, decomposition would begin to take effect on the physical body. So that Psalm, Psalm 16, there's a prophecy there that the careful Jew would be able to work out, well, if your Holy One would not see corruption, what does that mean? He could anticipate that that would mean before three days there could be a resurrection. But that's what definitely what it meant. Verse 37 says, But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. So he's shown Jesus as the culmination of history, the fulfillment of prophecy, and now he presents him as the justifier of sinners. So verse 38, he says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And here is the punch, verse 39. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now notice, this is a very key verse. As students of the New Testament, considering the epistles of Paul, we know the book of Romans and that central theme of justification by faith, that wasn't an afterthought with Paul. Right here, right at the beginning, that was the gospel from the beginning to the end. In his first message, this is where he leads them to. All who believe are justified from all things. And he puts in there that you could not be justified, justified by the law of Moses. He could say, that's the book of Romans condensed into one sentence, if you like. Amazing, amazing that he, he says this. And again, it's one of those things that's maybe hard for us to identify with. But for a Jew, these, these two words would have been shocking. E- everyone who believes. Everyone. What do you mean, everyone? You mean Jews and Gentiles? Everyone. And what do they have to do? Everyone who believes... Wait, wait, you mean they don't keep the law of Moses? They don't have to be circumcised? They don't have to... Everyone who believes. Shocking words. The simplicity and the beauty and the power of the gospel. Verse 40, he throws in a warning. Be careful that what, lest what has been spoken in the prophets comes upon you. Where, and he quotes a prophecy. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by, by no means believe, though one were there to declare it to you. In other words, he's saying, be very careful how you respond to this, because there are, the prophet has spoken that, that many will not receive this message. Verse 42, when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. And I love that verse. The Gentiles said, oh, listen, can you tell us that again? Can we meet here the same time, same place? Will you be here next week? Can you just preach the same thing again? That was amazing. Are you kidding? You mean we're saved by just believing? You mean Jesus was the Messiah? You mean the Gentiles are included in this? Oh my gosh, this is incredible. Come next week and I'll bring my family and friends. And verse 43, when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes, those who had converted to Judaism, followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded to them to persuaded them to continue 
in the grace of God. Uh, This is a wonderful, this is a a verse that's dear to my heart. Continuing in the grace of God, we've echoed that theme in some of our messages, how crucial that is. And this was Barnabas and Paul were persuading them. What a wonderful word. What, What a great thing to persuade people to do. Persuading people to continue in grace. I feel that that's part of my my purpose and my calling. Be a persuader of people to continue in grace. And what does that mean? He means, listen, you started by grace through faith, not by works, not by keeping the law, not by adhering to Judaism. You started by grace. Continue in grace all the way. Continue in grace. Now, of course, we could throw in the question here, did they continue in grace? It's, it's important to notice that Antioch of Pisidia is in the region of Galatia. It's right next to Galatia. In a couple of short years, Paul is going to write to the believers in Galatia, and he starts in chapter 1, in verse 6, he says, O foolish Galatians, no, sorry, he says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him who has called you by his grace. So that tells us that depends on which date you give Galatians. But if you give it the early date, it's maybe only one or two years past. He has to write to them and say, I told you to continue in grace, and I am amazed that you are so soon removed. Because what did the Galatians do? They went back to the law. And all through the book of Galatians, Paul is saying to them, listen, you were saved by grace, continue in grace. Why do you think you're living under the law again? Famous verse in chapter 5, verse 1, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free and do not go back again to the bondage of the law. That's what he says. But that's sadly what they did. So, um, Verse 44 tells us, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Wouldn't that be great next Sunday? Right here would be good, wouldn't it? But anyway, by word and mouth, the word got out and it spread and and, so many people came to hear what Paul was preaching. And verse 45, and get used to this, when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. And contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken of God. Notice that the Holy Spirit, through Luke, says that they were blaspheming. Because this is looking at it from the believer's point. In the Gospels, they were saying that Jesus was blaspheming. And here in Acts, it's saying that they're blaspheming by saying that Jesus is not who he claimed to be, who the Gospel sets him out to be. And they opposed the things spoken by Paul. So sadly, we see the Jews, and of course, when it's saying the Jews here, it's particularly speaking of the Jewish leaders. We know that there were many uh, among the remnant. There were many Jews who did respond and get saved and become part of the church. But all the way through the Gospels with Jesus and all the way through the book of Acts uh, we, in Jerusalem and also with Paul, we see the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees particularly, always opposing the work of God. Verse 46 and Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken first to you. But since you have, since you rejected and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And I think that's Isaiah 49, 6 or something like that. It's a, it's a passage through the prophet that's clearly said that the gospel will go to the Gentiles. And um, I have set you to a light to the Gentiles. Now, um, There's a clear understanding that the gospel, again, was to go to the Jew, through the Jew, but to the Gentiles, to all men. Um, In Romans 1.16, when it's speaking about the gospel, it says that the gospel will go to the Jew first and then the Gentile. Um, I've heard several different, several times in my Christian life that principle being taught that it's the church's responsibility 
in missions to first go to the Jew. Now, practically, I don't even know how that's possible. What do we do? We go find the synagogue like Paul did and preach in the synagogue. I don't know. But contextually, that's not what it means. It means that the gospel literally did come first to the Jew and then went to to the Gentiles. And, and, and Paul, in his context, in his mission, and his missionary journey, we, we see with his heart, he would often go to the synagogue first, but we see at this point, he says, okay, I came to you, you didn't listen, and we're going to go on to, to the Gentiles. Verse 48, there's a crowd here that was happy to hear that. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, and they glorified the word of the Lord, as many had been appointed to eternal life. They were glad that it wasn't by circumcision, it wasn't by keeping the law, it was by grace. And not just for the Jew, but for all, many salvations. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. There's a little footnote there, again, showing that the the gospel is spreading. This is uh, from Jerusalem now, it's spreading out through Asia Minor, or or, or what we call Turkey today. And here we see again, Right on, the, right, right on the tails of verse 49, where it says the word of the Lord was spread, we see, but the Jews, but the Jews, stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. They ordered them to leave Antioch and never to return, basically. There's an interesting verse in 2 Timothy 3, I have it on the screen, when Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, and afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. And of course, he's referring to, to the passage we're studying now, this first missionary journey. The persecutions I endured, and out of them the Lord delivered me. So, Back in Acts 13, in verse 51, it says, So they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. Now, you may remember in the Gospels, Jesus, when he commissioned his disciples, he says, you go and you preach in a certain town. If they don't receive it, you shake off the dust of your feet and you go, you go to the next town. And then, of course, that's, that's what they did. It was symbolic that, of... of, uh, of that they'd been rejected and they moved on to the next. So they came to Iconium. So if we look on this map here, remember they came across from Antioch, they came to Cyprus, uh, to Salamis, to, to Paphos, they came up to Perga, they went up to Antioch, and now they go over to Iconium. And this is where we uh, join in chapter 14, which we could start just for a few minutes. So we're looking at this region here, his Cyprus on the map, and Jerusalem and Antioch, and this is where our journey is in this little region here. Today's Turkey, we refer to it as Asia Minor. And um, in chapter 14, in verse 1, it says, it happened in Iconium, they went together to the synagogue of the Jews. So again, they went into the synagogue. This picture is a picture of the synagogue in Capernaum which is where Jesus had his public ministry. So this is a typical, what a typical kind of synagogue uh, may have looked like. And he spoke to that great multitude. Again, both Jews and Gentiles of Greeks believed. So a great response happening here in Iconium. And I love that it says, they spoke in such a way, or they so spoke, in other words, with boldness, with clarity, with the anointing of the Spirit of God on their words, opening hearts. And they spoke in such a way that the many believed. Verse 2, here you have it again. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. What a, what a, terrible, what a terrible thing. What a, what, to imagine that people could be used as an instrument of a demonic instrument against the work of God to poison the minds of people against, um, in this case, the apostles. Words words are are powerful. Spiritual warfare is is a very real thing. Verse 3, it doesn't say 
therefore they hightailed it out of there, therefore they fled. It says, therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So God sovereignly empowered the apostles, and we see that from the beginning of the book of Acts, including Paul here, to perform signs and wonders for a purpose. The signs in themselves were not the purpose. A sign is not the purpose. The sign is pointing to something. The sign in itself is not the point. A sign is pointing to something. And the sign is pointing to the fact, is to highlight the fact that these men are legitimate messengers from God and the message that they have is validated by God. That's why it says he was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by the Gentiles and the Jews with the rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and then they did flee. They fled to Lystra. And if we look at a there's an ancient ruins of Lystra. Oh, where that map is. So here they go from Iconium, and now they come down to Lystra. Go back to, go back to that picture for a minute. And they were preaching the gospel there. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb. He hears Paul preaching. Paul recognizes there's faith and he says, stand up and there's basically a miraculous healing. This lame man is healed. And verse 11, when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices in a, in a foreign language here and says, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And they wanted to begin to worship Paul and Barnabas. Remember, predominantly these weren't Jews. These were Greek idolaters. And this, is, this was the response. And it says that Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the, the chief speaker. And then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. Imagine. And Paul and Barnabas are beginning to realize what happened. Wait a minute. They, they want to sacrifice to us. They want to worship us. When they realized, verse 14, they tore their clothes, they ran against the multitude saying, we, why are you doing this? We are men just as you are. And we came to preach that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all things that are like them. And notice he adapts his message. He doesn't go to the Old Testament scriptures because predominantly these are not Jews. He points to what we call general revelation, the, the order of the creation. He looks to the creation and says, listen, there is a creator who has sent us to bring you this message. And um, you see that verse 16 and 17, he left himself with a witness. But even with these words, verse 18, he could scarcely restrain them from sacrificing to them. And then the Jews, there it is again, if you highlighted that word, you'd see it through. And then the Jews, and then the Jews, and then the Jews. From Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Now, isn't it incredible that the same crowd that was just about to worship them is the same crowd that then stoned them? Wow. Be careful with the praises of men. And it says here, they stoned him. Now, you can read different commentaries on this. Did it, they definitely stoned him because it says that. Did he actually die? Because it says, supposing him to be dead. Did he die and he was revived or brought back from, from death? Um, I have no problem uh, believing that was the case. It's not crystal clear. But, uh, but either way, it was miraculous that he was revived because typically when you are stoned, it is to death. Um, this was a, a common way that, that people were, were executed. It was through stoning. So it was very unlikely you would just get up again and walk back into the city, and that's what Paul did. So either way, it was miraculous. But probably we could say he, he did die, and the Lord revived him, but either way, it was a miracle. 
And then verse 20, the disciples gathered around him. He rose up and went back into the city. (laughs) Isn't that something? Okay, wow, you spared. Where are you going to go now? I'm going back. He goes right back into Lystra. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. And there's a city mound of Derby today. You can see some excavations that are taking place. And you can see that just going across to Derby there. And when he preached the gospel to that city, made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And this is why these arrows go in the opposite direction. So he comes from Iconium to Lystra to Derby. Then he goes back to Lystra, up to Iconium, and back to Antioch. And what does he do on the way? They're not just stopping for a coffee and a donut on the way. It says, verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, we must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, sure, persecution and tribulation will come. It doesn't mean because you're a Christian, you you now have uh, have it easy. We're, We're in spiritual warfare. And Acts, uh, verse 23, so when they had appointed elders in every church, notice that, um, perhaps this missionary journey, it wasn't like a couple of weeks or a couple of months, it was maybe a couple of years. In some of these towns, they spent months. And during that time, they were discipling and teaching and able to appoint certain men that they could see God had gifted. And though it be quite quick, um, these men were appointed as elders and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Verse 24, after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And again, if you look on our map from Antioch, they come back down through Pamphylia, and they come here to um, uh, Attilia. Is that right? Uh, Yeah. And verse 26, from there they sailed to Antioch. So they came down to this port and now they sail all the way along just the coastline and they come back to the original uh, Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. I love that recognition of God's grace with them all the way through. And then the last verses here say, when they had come and gathered the church together, this is the church in Antioch, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So they shared the joys and perhaps the pains of their journey as well. Um, Maybe that couple of years that they'd been away, that home church had been praying for them, waiting for them, and looked looked forward to the, 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 uh, the, the good news from a far country when they returned. So Acts 13 and 14 is the first missionary journey completed a couple of years. So um, that's what we were able to run through tonight. So next week, we're in Acts chapter 15, is on the Jerusalem Council. And that's the first church council where they, they really answer the question, what is the gospel? What does a person, whether he be Jew or Gentile, really have to do to be saved? And that's a key a question for them to answer right on the tails of that missionary journey. So, Father, thank you for our time here tonight and for us being able to take this hour together, this this window, this opportunity to go through these chapters together, considering and studying and learning uh, about these amazing uh, uh, chapters of faith and missions. And we pray you bless us in our continued studies together. In Jesus' name, amen.